Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the 10th in a series of podcasts promoting the Summit Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launched on December 22nd, and registration is still open at www.summitawars.us. In December 1988, a group of living historians who studied the Seminole Wars era were duly satisfied when they completed their 60-plus mile march from Tampa to Bushnell, retracing the steps that Major Dade and his ill-fated column took en route to Fort King, but which was unceremoniously interrupted by a Seminole Indian ambush that annihilated the command almost down to a man in late December 1835. For those men, the distance and the march itself of more than 60 miles was enough to satisfy their curiosity, but it was not enough for Jerry Morris. It was only by chance that Jerry learned of the march, and he joined it on a whim, not expecting to even finish the five-day trek. And yet, when it was over, Jerry was not satisfied. Major Dade had intended to take the trek all the way up to Fort King, near present-day Ocala. The Seminole ambush interrupted that, but Jerry didn't feel he should be interrupted. Jerry soon discovered that it would require more than stamina to finish that arduous trek. It required a personal odyssey of many twists and turns to determine the best route to finish the journey. The product of that investigation? The Fort King Road, a methodical survey of the route from Fort Brook in Tampa all the way up to Fort King, with which he collaborated with Jeff Huff. Jerry, who has podcasted with us before, joins us again to tell us how he did it. Jerry Morris, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. The late Frank Laumer, a co-founder of the Seminole Wars Foundation, had plotted the living historian's trek from Tampa up to Bushnell. So he had maps and things that you could consult. Looked at Frank's map and the way he had done it, and I asked him how he'd done it. I was very interested in what the rest of the road was from Bushnell on to Ocala. And I said, why don't we march the rest of this road one year? And he said, well, as far as I know, there hasn't been anybody that laid that down on a map yet. I asked him how to go about doing it, and, and he told me, I said, well, I think I'll do that. So, with a challenge from Frank Laumer and your natural curiosity, you set out to to map the road from the battlefield up to Fort King. But anytime I had a question, I could call Frank and he'd answer any question, take as long as I needed. And such a remarkable person I've never met in my life. I was doing something that he wanted done and he was proud that somebody was doing it. What was your next step? Got all the maps and went to Dade City and they gave me the old map book and I, they made copies for me for all of that part of the county up through there. Same thing at Sumter County. And then when I got to Merriam County in Socala, and I had to go to the county courthouse there, and then they wouldn't let me even in the room where they had those maps. And I'd sit there most of the day when I told this woman what sections I wanted and what townships I wanted and all that. And she finally got them all out and printed up. Frank Lomer told me of a place in Tampa that I could go get surveying maps, the geological surveying maps. And you could buy them from them, but that only lasted for a month or so, and I had to start buying them from Denver. 
I had to buy them from Denver. I'd call it the geological survey people in Denver, tell them what maps that I needed. They would tell me what they cost, and I'd send them a check for it, and they would send them to me. And one interesting thing about one of the maps was uh, north of Dade City. Each one has a name, and it has something to do with the part that it covers. The next one north of Dade City is Lacucci. There's a town called Lacucci, and uh, that's what they named that whole survey about the name. And I told her that what I needed was one of the meanest towns in Florida named Lacucci. And the woman that I started to kind of laughed and said, with a name like that, and it's a rough place. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. And I told her the story that I went in there to a bar one night, and me and an uncle and a guy come in and got in a fight with a guy about a cow getting in his corn patch and finally shot up the place with a shotgun stuck a knife in the guy and everything else we'd haul us out the back door <laughs> it was a rough town at that one point it was scary being in a place like that and at the time that happened it was before i'd been in the army i wasn't even old enough to drink and i was in there and my uncle would took me in there <laughs> once you had gathered all the maps and all the routes what came next i had all the maps and the routes and i had to transfer that over to the Geological survey map. In 1843, they wanted to survey the whole entire state of Florida so they could get people to homestead some land in Florida. And they figured they didn't want to keep a standing army here. And if they could get people to homestead it, you'd most likely you'd have a gun to shoot wild game with and stuff. And, and they called it the Armed Occupational Act of 1843. How well did the Armed Occupation Act serve its purpose? And they surveyed it all, and people did start moving in. They figured that if the Indians rose up again, they'd fight for their homesteads. Well, the first thing that happened was down in Miami, they, some of the Indians came out to swamp there and attacked some people, and they went hunting the army. <laughs> and they said, well, we're not here to do that. That's what you're here for. So they saw right away that wasn't going to work, so they had to keep some army. There's several places that was homesteaded under after they got it all surveyed. As they were surveying it, when it was done by townships, these 36 townships in a section of land, one through 36. What means did they use to survey the distances in these townships? They had a chain that they measured it with, and then right away that got me, what in the world is the chain? So I looked it up, it's a Gunter's chain. He made it in the 1600 or something. His chain made the measurements in England the same as the measurements in the United States. He worked it out where it would work with both systems. And each link in it's about nine point something inches. You've got a circle on each end of the chain. And it's just a wire, it's not a big chain. And I made it out of the smallest wire that it was allowable to use at that time because I could bend that. And it's got a circle on each end, and then between each link, there's two more circles. And I couldn't figure out why in the world all these circles. And I just put one link to the other one, you know. But that ain't the way it works. After I got it made and folded it up, I understood why. But those two circles between the links, when you folded it up, it was nine inches wide. You could spread it back up, and it didn't tangle up a bit. That's the reason for the two circles in between the links. That's what they measured the whole state with. There were two standard lengths for these chains. One was 100 feet and another was 50 feet. What were the differences between them besides 50 feet? At that time, it was all a 100-foot chain, bull chain. But most of the people started using 50 foot. I guess it was easier to pull through the brush. George Washington was a surveyor. He used a 50-foot chain. 
at the time that they were surveying Florida in 1843, the circles on the end of the links wasn't welded together. They just bent around and that was it. And each surveyor had to have two of those changed, one that they used and one that they didn't use. And each morning they had to stretch out the one that they didn't use and then take the one they're going to use for the day and stretch it out beside it. And the, each end they had an adjustment as you could just to make sure it was still the same length. It's amazing how good that they've done the surveying. Some of the points we're still using today, it's how accurate they were. And, and now they do it all with lasers and stuff and it's that those points are still there. <laughs> and at that time they used a hard lighter knot part of a pine tree for stakes when they put a stakes corner of the section of land they used that in it and it was just amazing to do that. The surveying chain was most necessary but you had to use some ingenuity too when you came up to a tree in the middle of your path. After I made the surveying chain they had another thing they had to use like if they came to a giant oak tree and it was in the middle of their valley. You can't just go around and start on the other side. You had an offset cross, they called it, and it's just a square pieces of wood about a foot wide on each side, on each end, from end to end. And two sites with a horsehair in between it, you could set that on top of a pole where you last measured to, and then you take another pole, put it up, by, say it's an oak tree, and you site that up and you direct them to get that right in line with where you're sighting it. Then you make the offset cross, you take the top of it off of that pole and go down and put it on the one that you just sighted in, and then you sight back to the one that you just left, and so that makes it square. And then you measure off to the right, ever how much you have to measure just to get past it, and you say that's three lengths or four lengths or and a half of chain, and you keep those measurements, and you keep on going around the tree till you get to the other side, and then you sight back the last time, and that puts it across, and you're going from continuing on from there at exactly this same line that you was in but when you started. It is amazing that they could do that and it made me one of those crosses and a little box to carry it in. I made the stakes to put in the ground and all that stuff. Modern scientific methods have verified the accuracy of Gunther's chain measurements and yet Gunther himself used a fairly unscientific method to determine the length of his chains. How did he do that? When Gunther made his chain, he talked about what they was using for the first distance. This is when they done it. They went down to a church one morning and counted the left foot of the first 13 men that came out of the church. And that established a rod. And they cut a pole that long and divided it into 10 sections. And that was a 10 length pole. And that's the way he established his chain length and stuff off of the left foot of 13 men. <laughs> but they had to have some measurement. For a long time, they just used that pole. They'd lay it down and then turn it over and let it fall down again and turn in so many rods would be the length. I kind of think that's where the Scottish people that do the Scottish games, they're throwing the log up in the air and let it tumble over. I think it came from that turning that pole over for the survey. Only their pole's a lot heavier. <laughs> but it couldn't have come from that. I don't know that. I just think it could have. I had to have all of that stuff. Armed with all these maps and with your measurement tools, you still needed the survey notes based on the measurements. 
which you had to send away for and then wait for them to finally arrive. I finally got all the maps that I needed together and I, I would have to call Denver and tell them I needed to survey notes for a certain section of land and township so-and-so and so and they would tell me what they would look up the price of them and maybe it'd be $6.35 or whatever it was and I could mail them a check for that and then they would send me those measurements. It would take it forever. All of this is quite a complex undertaking. Did you have any prior surveying experience? I had a little bit. I had worked at the phosphate mines after I got out to service for two, two and a half years. And a part of that, maybe a six or eight months of it, I'd done surveying there. At that time, they started using a steel tape. You'd just stretch a hundred foot tape out and the guy would sight you in and you'd put in what they call prospecting holes. And they'd buy a bunch of land in the corner of every section, 100 feet off the corner each way. And they'd put a stake in. That's where they would drill a hole for a sample of how much phosphate there was underneath there, how far it was down, the overburden and how much was underneath there, how much phosphate there was would be 24 feet of overburden and then 10 feet of phosphate and then and, and the bedrock. It wasn't really complicated surveying, but I did have a little bit of experience about surveying. That was it. <laughs> you made a few unexpected discoveries as you did this. At one point, we even found the fort up north of Bushnell. Jeff was trying to put it during the book. There was a medium line that they called it that was already been put in years ago down through there. It mentioned on it across the Fort King Road at a certain place. And then at the north section, the, the, the section east of there, it had the Fort King Road cross there. But it didn't show anything from that point down to the other point where the Fort King Road ran. It followed a road that followed and went on down to what was called Abrahamstown. It didn't connect together. We kept digging the older surveys and newer surveys. Finally found one where a guy had homesteaded some land in that section. And it gave the, the footprint for that quarter section of land. And it showed that the Fort King Road ran through the section that he had homesteaded. And it gave the coordinates of where that was. And the north side of it is a warm springs, which where Fort McClure was. And nobody had ever heard of Fort McClure. Then I finally found in the diary that Frank had bought. In his diary, he noted that we spent the night at Fort McClure, 38 miles south of Fort King. It didn't say anything other than that, that there's warm springs there. And other than that, it didn't say what Fort McClure looked like, anything. And at that time, a fort could have been anything. Could have been just a place to tie a horse up. <laughs> They're mining all of that property up there. There's a golf course there. Where the golf course ain't, they're digging it up and getting the limestone out of it. So I don't even know if it's possible to even find it now. Never got a chance to go up there, but even look for it. You identified the location of Fort McClure. What natural features were you able to identify through your survey investigation? Found a nine-mile pond, which is nine miles from the Fort King. It's still there. It's a park now. Back in the 1920s, they dug the pond up and they saved the two or three buckets fulls of lead and, and musket balls and stuff that they found while they was digging that. They put that in the notes on the book, but Frank Lommer edited out so much of it that Plum met it. <laughs> First time I ever got mad at it. <laughs> he took out a lot of the stuff that we wrote in there. I thought that should be in there. And Frank told me so what it didn't have anything to do with what we want to have to do with. He said, that's the reason I took it out. I said, yeah, but it was a place they spent the night at a lot. I went back and looked for an 18-mile pond, which is up by Oxford, Florida. Found a place that I think was it, but I never could prove that. And then just south of Oxford is 23-mile pond. They were all distances. It was that many miles to Fort King from there. Those were places that they would camp for the night 
at different times, according when they left Fort King and stuff, or when they was going to Fort King. I think the Fort McClure was where they would have probably spent the night at if they hadn't gotten killed. If there was no battle, that would have been the next place they would have stopped. It's about the same distance that it would have been. How long did it take you to gather up all this information? It was a couple of years, but when I finally got them all on the map, there was 14 maps, and I pasted them on some cardboard that I got from work, some big pieces, and I taped them on there. You took those mounted maps and you displayed them at various living history events relating to the Seminole Wars, and that led to a most fortuitous meeting. Each year at the battlefield, I'd, I'd set them out beside my tent and line them up, and I still remember the day that Jeff came up there and he looked at them and looked at them and looked at them up and down two or three times. And he come back and he says, you know, Jerry, said, we can make a book out of this. I'm like, how are you going to make a book out of all that? You can make a book out of this. He said, no, we'll do it section by section. Then I realized we could do that. I just wanted to know where the road ran and where it went. And it's unbelievable. I can't drive up 301 now without thinking about where the 14 road crossed here and there and stuff. And That's how you got together with Jeff. Yeah, I didn't know Jeff before then. And he came up and introduced himself, and he worked in the Tampa in the mapping division. So we decided to do it, and I got all the survey notes, and he'd give me a list. He'd send me survey notes for this and this and this, and I would give them to him section one of the township 25 east and 31 south, and the survey of where the 14 road crossed in section one and then section two. I learned how to do that on the computer, but instead of having to call Denver and pay for them, I'd get them free, and that wasn't available when I started. <laughs> it was amazing to see it. First, I put together a book, and everywhere there was a change in the road, a turn in the road, I put the GPS coordinates right at that point, and it might be a, a half mile further, put another one like that. And I had a book of the whole 14 road, and then I had another back of the book was the coordinates on page three, and one, two, three, four, five, six, like that. And you could follow it with a GPS doing it that way. And back then you could buy just a GPS thing as about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Frank, don't think he ever understood what that book was about. <laughs> he said, well, how'd you come up on this point? And I said, well, the road turns in. I said, if you followed from point to point to point, you wouldn't be exactly on the road, but you'd be kind of close to it. He said, okay. Jerry, both you and Jeff Huff brought unique skill sets for your collaboration on this project. Tell us one in particular that Jeff came up with. Jeff found University of Florida had papers where they'd done surveying on the by plane in 1938 when they was experimenting for the war, yeah? and they'd done flyovers the whole state. They let us use those things, and he could take the computer and line it up and put it right over our road. And there was a picture of our road. And in some places, you could still see the path of the 8-4 King Road 100 years later. At certain places, it moved about back and forth several times because you know, if there's a pond developed here where they just went around it, another time of the year, they'd go the other way around it. It was amazing to look at them, the aerial photographs, look how close surveys were. I think that was really when people started realizing that this was actually a good map of the road, because you could see it there for still there a hundred years later. Had to buy some software to do that. <laughs> Jeff had done a thing on the first big hurricane in Tampa that blowed away most of Tampa, or most of the houses, and he used this same survey program and put up the dollars for the disc we needed. <laughs> that helped us a lot with doing it. Without Jeff knowing that, it would have been hard to do. We couldn't have done it really without the overlay disc. 
I run up on the right person when Jeff saw all those things I had laid out there. He's one of the very smartest persons today is about it. How important is your book to the continued study and awareness of the Second Seminole War? It must be pretty important. It's the best-selling book that Seminole Wars Foundation's ever had. <laughs> it's pretty good to have a book where you name on the cover of it today. There's a picture of the complete path of the road because you and Jeff got together, pulled your resources, pulled your knowledge, pulled all the research that you had done, and put it into one solid book. Yes, you can look at it and you can understand it. Jerry, today, anyone who wants to know more about the Fort King Road starts with the book that you and Jeff Huff wrote. Anyone who picks up that book can trust your word. What did you learn as you were looking at the surveys about the importance of integrity in a man's word? During the surveying, I learned that they had a surveyor and one lineman and one chainman. Usually there was three of them. They had to swear that they would do it to the best of their ability, and they did. And anything that you swore to, you had to do it to the best of your ability. And if you swore it, you was going to do it. If you didn't do something that you swore to, the word got around and people didn't think much of you. That would be so amazing today if we could get back to that. That's probably the best lesson I've learned out of all of our studies that I've done, is if your word's not any good, you're not any good. Jerry, we started our discussion with your desire to examine the route that Major Dade and his men would have taken along the Fort King Road had they not been ambushed. Through your collaboration with Jeff Huff, we've married the old surveying maps of the 1830s and 40s with aerial photography of the early 1900s and modern GPS satellite coordinates, which comprise the contents of the book, The Fort King Road, Then and Now. What we haven't done is discuss how important the Fort King Road was back then. So, how important was it? It was everything. I often wondered myself what this question you ask. I found a diary that the quartermaster kept at Fort Foster, and he wrote down everything that came up and down that road. Fort Foster was a supply post, and there was a road that turned east there, went to another fort, two or three other forts they supplied from that fort. So a lot of stuff came to Fort Foster, was unloaded, put on another wagon, and sent to another fort. He kept a real good book of all of that. In one week, it was two or 3,000 troops went down that road. Vines and stuff in Florida grow pretty fast, and this road was just cleared 20 foot wide. And I wondered why it didn't grow over right quick like it. But there was so much traffic up and down it that it couldn't grow over. Frank took me to a place that close to his house that's still there. It's the cover of the book. It shows a picture of the Fort King Road. My wife took a picture of it. And the ruts are about, I don't know, foot deep still. And it's in through a pine forest, and pine needles covered up, but you can still see where the wagon wheels was. And so there had to be a lot of traffic up and down that road. So I'm sure the Indians use it. I'm sure that the troops used it. Found one place where they had a mail carrier that rode twice a month, I think it was. He got killed just south of Fort Foster. The Indians killed him. They found him and drug him and throwed him into a little creek up there. And the troops came along and found him, and they took him out and buried him. They didn't say where they buried him, but... Me and Frank figured they probably buried him in the middle of the road because there were a lot of wolves part at that time. If the wolves would eat him up, they probably buried him like that so it would keep the dirt back down. That'd be an interesting thing to go find, though. Jerry Morris, thank you so much for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, I enjoyed talking about it, but thank you so much for asking me to do this. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. 
Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminal Wars Podcast. The Seminal Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminal Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminal Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminal Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.